Hey, everybody. Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. And today's guest is Evan Spiegel, the CEO of Snap. Now, I think everybody would agree the tech world is driven by innovation. And Snap, with products like Snapchat, is setting a gold standard for getting new ideas to take off around the very simple idea of reinventing the camera. Now, this is a company that Evan co-founded in 2011 when he was a student at Stanford. But you know, there's a lot more to Snap's success than just having good ideas. They've created a culture where those ideas can actually develop. They have then communicated those ideas internally and to shareholders. And most importantly, they have actually turned those ideas into reality. Now, of course, you may not be out to build Silicon Valley's next big thing, but every leader needs to know how to create a culture where big ideas thrive and become reality. So if you want to understand the secrets of fostering innovation, then keep listening. Here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Evan Spiegel. You got to tell me, you know, what were your emotions like the, the day you, you rang the bell at the New York Stock Exchange and became a 26-year-old public company CEO? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, I'll never forget one of my friends gave me advice to absolutely not have confetti. <laughs> you know, whenever you make a mistake, they'll put up this whole photo of you with all the confetti uh, <laughs> in the newspapers. You don't want the confetti. So I, all, all I really remember, you know, Bobby and I uh, rang the bell. I remember feeling really proud of our team and, and also just the immense pressure, uh, you know, to, to get back to work. So Bobby and I actually rang the bell and then we went over to the trading desk at uh, Goldman Sachs to see them open the stock. And then we flew home to LA to, to get back to work. So get back at it. Oh, that's great. You know, Evan, some say that you're redefining the camera. Others say you're a social media company. Others say you're in the entertainment business. How do you think we should think about the, the kind of business that you're really in? That's such a great question. You know, our platform is so large now that it touches a lot of those areas that you mentioned, whether it's, you know, things like social media or, inter, you know, entertainment, augmented reality. But at the core of our service is this camera. And when you open the Snapchat application, it opens into the camera. And the most important insight that we've had in creating our business is the changing role of the camera in people's lives. Because today, the camera is in everyone's pocket on their smartphone. And rather than using this big, bulky hardware camera once every week or once every month or something like that, people are now using their camera every day, all day long to talk. And so there's been this huge transition over the last 10 years where cameras are now being used for communication and not just saving things or storing memories. And the next big transition, the thing we're really excited about is the camera going from being a way to talk to a way to experience the world. And that's going to happen through augmented reality and this idea that the camera can help overlay computing on the world around you. And so over time, our camera has definitely expanded a lot. You know, we have this communications product, but we also have the ability for people to watch content on our platform or play games, or even use a map that shows where their friends are and what their friends are up to. So this really high frequency of engagement around our camera and the way people are using it to talk has also helped us get into other lines of business. So you really have a broad frame of reference for your business that gives you all kinds of runway. But I, I want to take you back, you know, and, and I'm sorry I have to do this because I'm sure you told the story at least a million times, but how did you create the brand? Gosh, what a great question. So, you know, Bobby and I uh, lived across the hall from each other in college, and he was a brilliant programmer. He was studying mathematical and computational science, which is harder than just computational science because it layers in all these complex. That's above my pay grade. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> mine too. Um, and I, I was busy uh, making the t-shirts and stuff for all the different organizations on campus. Um, and so I was really passionate about graphic design and I was, you know, a, a design major and Bobby uh, was working on computer science and we just became friends. We lived across the hall from each other and, you know, we both had jobs at the time. I was working at Intuit and, you know, Bobby was doing some coding and he and I both really just wanted to create our own thing. And so we started working together on this project called Future Freshman, which was designed to help people get into college. So we felt like students, the college application process was really confusing. There were all these things to keep track of. So if we just made a big piece of software to handle all of it for you, it'd make it easier. And so we spent like a year or a year and a half trying to build this really sophisticated piece of software 
to help kids apply to college. And it turns out nobody used it, uh, which was especially <laughs> depressing because we both had younger siblings who were applying to college at the time and they didn't touch it. And so we were like, oh, uh-oh, um, you know, our, our uh, case study of two uh, in the form of our siblings did not necessarily find the product very helpful. And so even though we'd invested all this time into it, we were really left trying to figure out what to do next. And around that time, we you know, experimented with a bunch of different projects. And one of them you know, was, was called Pickaboo at the time, which was this idea to send disappearing photos. And you know, I presented it to my design class, and we started working on you know, a, a prototype version of the app. And you know, as we were playing with it and using it with our friends, we just realized how fun it was to send photos back and forth. And people didn't care so much that the photos disappeared. You know, that was a part of it because it made sending photos more like talking, uh, you know, and just the way most conversations uh, you know, aren't recorded. Um, but, but really we, we saw how fun it was to send photos back and forth all, all day long. And we started using it with our friends and ultimately, you know, stayed in my dad's house that summer, worked on it some more. And, uh, you know, over time it, it started growing. So was Peekaboo itself a, a hit you know, you had to change the name. Was that a big setback for you? I mean, I, you know, when you think back on that, when you lost that name, was this like, oh my gosh, or was it a new opportunity? You know, it's so funny you said that. I think we got like some cease and desist letter from a, another company called Pickaboo, which was actually a tremendous gift because uh, it, it allowed us to to create the name Snapchat. I, I still have a piece of paper where I'm like trying to brainstorm a new name, you know, and it's like photo sharing, like, you know, picture talking, like Snapchat. And I think, you know, when we settled on Snapchat, we just couldn't imagine that there were no other companies out there with that name yet. You know, the website was available, all this stuff. So we were so excited. You know, nowadays, it's so hard to find a, find a website because everyone's thought of everything. Yeah, well, Snapchat is just like one of the great brand names of all time. It just, it's, it, it says it all, you know. What was it, Evan, that really made Snapchat take off? Oh, gosh. what uh, You know, it's hard to pinpoint one thing, but I think the thing... Um, that really clicked was that young people just started using it, uh, you know, in school and with their friends to talk, uh, especially because sending photos via text message at that time was really slow. And it also was pretty expensive. So, you know, it costs like 50 cents to send a photo and it'd take like a minute for it to upload. And so we really focused on making Snapchat really, really fast. And so it was the fastest way to send a photo. And I think that speed, uh, you know, and how much fun it was to send photos back and forth with friends is really what, you know, made it catch on and start growing. Yeah, I read where you have like a trillion and a half snaps a year, which is more than any other platform in any kind of media, which is absolutely amazing. And and you you were like the absolute rage of technology. And I understand it that Mark Zuckerberg actually came to you and offered you $3 billion. And then he came back and offered you more. And then it's rumored that uh, Google offered you $30 billion. I don't know. These numbers get out of control sometimes. But how in the world you have this opportunity to cash in, make all this money. How did you muster up the courage to, to say no? You had a sure thing. Well, I think for us, the joy has always been, you know, working together and building really cool stuff. And, you know, for Bobby and I, we just love the team that we have and the product that we get to work on in this amazing community of like 200 million people who use our product every day that we get to serve. And that for us is what's really motivating and inspiring. And so, we, we never wanted to to give that up and we wanted to be able to pursue this this vision. Of course, there's a lot of, uh, I, I think, you know, we also understand we have a fiduciary responsibility. So, you know, we took the decision really seriously and talked with our board about it. But ultimately, we just saw this huge opportunity to continue growing the business and also just do what we love. You know, I was thinking about this. And, and so I had to ask you this, you know, did you have this light switch go off in your head that said, hey, you know what? I want to really build one of the world's great companies. Gosh, not not really. I mean, we we, we were more just having so much fun doing what we were doing. <laughs> um, it wasn't really about building like a you know the, some some big company or something. We just we just really loved the product, and you know I think one thing that that's always been unique is our product has had really different values than other you know technology companies or social media companies. We've never had like public likes and comments. Um, we've always always really focused on people feeling comfortable expressing themselves, and so. Some of our concern was that, you know, if we sold our company, that we wouldn't be able to operate the product, you know, really in line with our values. And that's always been something that's important to us. But, you know, really, we just enjoy what we do. You know, that's that's the motivation. Oh, that's the best thing of all. Get up and uh, go to work doing something you love. You know, you know, so you go public. The stock absolutely goes nuts, you know. 
And then you redesign the product. And then the stock drops, I think, like 80%. The world now writes you off as some dummy that could have sold the company for billions. And, you know, unpack that experience for us. So what, what was that like? Well, I think there are, let's let's say there are positives and negatives to being held accountable in the public markets. I, I did not fully appreciate um, the short-term nature of going public. And, you know, before I we went public, I went and talked to a bunch of CEOs that ran public companies or had taken companies public and asked them for advice and things like that. And, you know, they really reiterated, uh, you know, this view that, that the public markets are very short-term oriented. And it's really difficult to make long-term decisions. And I was like, you know what, I'm sure it'll be fine. Like we've been running the company, I don't know, for however long, maybe it'd been six or seven years at that time. I was like, I'm sure it'll be okay. And I really did not fully understand and appreciate, um, you know, the the way that the public markets work and how they think about like the future value of, of your business. And so we just continued to make decisions just like we were a private company because that we felt like that was the right thing to do to keep making long-term uh, decisions that were the the right thing to do for our community. And so in the case of that redesign, for example, we separated out, uh, you know, content that's made by celebrities or major publishers or things like that from content created by your real friends. And we did that to make sure that people had these really strong relationships with their real friends and also create a space for publishers to be successful. And that change was very disruptive because some celebrities got upset because we changed how much distribution they were getting. Publishers got upset, those sorts of things. But ultimately, we really felt that was the, the right thing to do. And so even though it was really painful at the time to go through that transition, you know, simultaneously, we also transitioned our advertising business. So we went from, uh, you know, fixed pricing of our advertising sold by a human, primarily by a human sales force to an auction-based model, uh, which brought pricing down more than 90%. And so we had this really challenging environment where we changed the product, we brought advertising pricing down 90 plus percent, and we were still really trying to grow the business. And you know that, that was very difficult to do as a public company. And I think the most difficult part is that you know, a lot of the compensation that our team members receive is in the form of stock-based compensation. And so when you're a member of our team and you're trying to pay your mortgage and the stock's down 80%, that's really challenging. And so it makes it very hard to retain really amazing people who, who have a hard time coping with that volatility and paying their car payment or their mortgage payment or something like that. And so that was the hardest part of all of it and the most heartbreaking part um, just to see the impact on, on our team um, and their livelihood and their compensation. But you know, outside of that, I think it is really important to make you know, long-term decisions in the best interest of the company and just sort of ride the ups and downs of the stock market. So, you know, everybody at the time thought you had the bomb. They buy your stock big time and, and you make the big change. You know, you've got to have innately a real healthy dissatisfaction for the status quo. That that took a lot of guts to change something that people were in love with. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it seems sort of obvious to us because it seemed like the right change for the product. And we figured once people learned about it and adapted to it, that they'd like it too. And that's what we've seen historically with our products. You know, at the time, we, we've made this product called Stories that ended up being a very popular uh, product of ours. But when we first released it for the first six or nine months, nobody really used it. And, you know, they were kind of like, what is, what is this doing here? And so it took a long time for that product to get traction. And so what we've seen is that, you know, the growth of technology products is actually constrained by the rate at which people can change. <laughs> so oftentimes we talk a lot about celebrating all these new technology achievements, but actually humans are the ones that I think create the constraints on the growth and adoption of new technology products. And so we always try to keep that in mind when we're building new products to bring the community along with us and also to just, you know, I guess pay attention to the fact that day one, it, it is hard to adjust. Humans don't necessarily love that sort of change, even when it can provide more value. Yeah. Well, you know, there's not that many early adopters that you, you try to simplify so you can bring everybody along. But when you did that redesign there, you know, you talked about how it had impact on your people, you know, the stock going down. You also got a lot of personal criticism. You had like uh, Kylie Jenner. She's got 35 million followers on Twitter, you know, basically say you made the product worse and you get some egg on your face. You know, how did that affect your psyche? I mean, I've had the kind of these things happen to me, too. <laughs> Don't like it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's never fun, It's but it's also part of the job. <laughs> so I think um, just, just remembering that it, it's not actually personal and that, you know, our community does feel really strongly about our products and, and actually trying to keep an open mind and really listen. Because I think some of the, the concern that I have is that as the company gets bigger, 
And as you receive all of this criticism on an ongoing basis, sometimes uh, it can be hard to know when to listen. And so what we see a lot of times is that as companies grow or as leaders grow and they learn to you know, harden themselves to that criticism, um, that sometimes you know, when it really matters, when people are really frustrated or you make a big mistake, they aren't as open to listening. And so what I try to do is strike that right balance of trying to stay open to and listening to the complaints and frustrations that our community has. And at the same time, just knowing that it's, it's not personal and I'm doing the best I can to do my job. Um, but, but yeah, it, it doesn't feel good. And that's why it's so important to have close friends and family um, to support you. you know? and, and obviously for me, it's just delightful hanging out with our children. So I think having those spaces to, to relax and just feel the love of your family members, it definitely makes it easier. And you, you, deep down, you felt like you'd made the right long-term decision that would pay off for you. Yeah, definitely. That was important. You know, you, you're, so you're in this deep hole and you're, you're digging out of it now. And, and how much focus did you, did you put on culture? That's, that's such, a, such a good question and something that we focus a lot on because it's so vitally important. And we really learned the hard way because the company grew very rapidly from being a couple hundred people to several thousand in a very short period of time, like a year, year and a half. And that was a really difficult period of time for the company because there were only a couple hundred people, you know, 100, 200 people who had been with the company a really long time and understood the values. Our values are really simple. It's just kind, smart, and creative. And that's, that's what we care about. And that's what we try to put in, into practice through our behaviors. But the challenge that we had was that we had a very small number of people who really understood those values and understood how we thought about the company and our products. And we had thousands of new people who really wanted to learn about the company. And we didn't have enough people to educate all those new people quickly uh, on how we ran our, you know, our business. And so there are people that brought all of these new ideas and skills from other big companies, you know, values from other companies. And we, you know, I think got a little bit behind the curve in terms of educating people on our values and also holding people accountable to our values through our performance management process. And so a lot of the work that we had to do, you know, as the company grew very rapidly was to build out the processes and, and uh, almost a new way of educating team members so that when they come into SNAP, they really understand, you know, what we stand for and what we're trying to create. And I think, you know, the reason why we focus so much on having a kind culture, I mentioned kind, smart, and creative. Kindness is so important for us because in in our view, that's what helps people feel comfortable being creative. And so unless you have a really supportive atmosphere, it it can be hard to take risks. It can be hard to throw out a crazy idea. Um, And and so what we really want to do is have a culture where people feel comfortable being themselves because that's what drives that innovation and creativity. So you're really creating a, a work environment where positivity is, is, is very important. You know, and, you know, kindness, it sounds so soft. You know, what makes you think that, you know, that's going to really deliver the business outcome that you're looking for? Well, in our business, innovation really is everything. And in technology, you know, the, the business moves so quickly and, you know, new companies uh, and little startups come out of nowhere and take on these, these giant companies. And so remembering that that creativity and innovation really is at the core of business success means that you spend a lot of your time and energy thinking about how to feed that creativity. And so while kindness may seem like soft um, for people who aren't familiar with our culture, at the same time, it's absolutely vital to the core of the technology business and that's why it, it's been so important. And so kindness for us is, is very strategic um, because it allows people to, to really, you know, feel comfortable expressing themselves and take risks like that redesign. Because if we're not constantly reinventing ourselves, then someone else will come and, and do a better job uh, than we are for our community. Why do you think so many leaders discount the fact that the soft stuff really does drive hard results? Gosh, well, it's hard to speak for other leaders because I, I actually, a lot of the leaders that I see today are very focused on. And I think one of the reasons that they're so focused on it um, is that there's more and more research uh, that shows that we are all inherently very creative, but that our fear over time overrides that creativity and actually inhibits us from expressing ourselves, inhibits us from sharing our new ideas. And so I think a lot of leaders are very attuned to this phenomenon and are, are very focused on trying to make sure people do feel comfortable, that they don't feel afraid of expressing their ideas because leaders are always in search of great new ideas. Um, so I, I do think there's a focus on that. And I think, you know, more and more, especially as uh, our work lives and our home lives blend, you know, now during COVID more than ever, um, there, there's really this feeling uh, of, of the need to bring your whole self to work. And that's something that we really want to support at SNAP. And we do through things like council, where people sit together in small groups and take turns sharing how they feel and listening to one another. And 
I think that's another thing that helps people feel appreciated for their own unique abilities and their own unique points of view. And that brings out the best in our talent. You know, Evan, so many tech people get enamored with a, a great product, but you know, we all know a great product's not enough. You've got to build a sustainable business model. How are you going about making that happen? Well, I, I think for us, at least in our business, that starts with sustainable engagement. And so we've built our business around friends talking to one another, which we found is something that people really love to do uh, and they'd like to do all day long. Um, and so that durable engagement, uh, a service that's really built around bringing friends together and helping them express themselves, I think is really the starting point to, to building uh, you know, longevity as a business. And so what we try to do is, is create more value for those people using our products to, to hang out with their friends. And then as part of that, uh, we've also made it easier for advertisers and other businesses to grow and achieve their business objectives by partnering with Snap. And so the really unique thing about our business and I think about some other technology businesses, is that we think about ourselves as a platform where we have different stakeholders. So we're constantly trying to create value for the people that use our products all day long. And we're also thinking about how we can create value for our advertising partners or our other business partners or creators who are building augmented reality. And so creating value for all of those people, creating like win-win-win uh, value is really what allows the business to grow overall. Because when the businesses that are advertising on Snap are thriving, they're reinvesting more in our community, which then we can reinvest in new products. And that benefits our community and helps them stay more engaged. And so I think thinking about our business from this platform perspective and about creating value for all the different stakeholders is really for us the key to creating durable business value. You know, the, the rude reality is, is that the, the forces of business and competition, it's, it's ruthless out there. And you mentioned a little bit earlier about people coming up and other startups. You can get rid of that in a hurry. You know, what kind of mindset does this put you in? Well, I think it's one that's always like curious um, because you want to learn about the world and learn about people and really let the people who use your products guide you and drive you. And I think uh, many business leaders have learned how powerful it is to just follow your community uh, and their desires. That's how we created some of our greatest products because people have shared with us the things that they want <laughs> um, and, and we've been able to, to serve them. And so I think constantly you know, having that curiosity, really seeking to better serve our community has helped us continue to innovate and grow. And that's one of the strategic advantages of having you know, these hundreds of millions of people using SNAP is that all of them are, they're helping us make our service better every day. And so as long as we're continuing to listen to them and follow their lead in terms of the products and services that they want, then I think that helps us to, to you know, maintain that pace of innovating. It's also very inspiring because our community is constantly raising the bar for us. Your community is just getting bigger and bigger, you know, and you touched on this a little bit earlier in terms of what makes you competitive and your business model work. But Warren Buffett always talks about the importance of creating moats around your business. I remember telling me once you want to make sure there's sharks and barracudas and everything is keeping everybody away from your castle. So how would you best describe your moat? Well, platform businesses create very, very uh, powerful moats over time. And so I can give one example uh, with our augmented reality business. So when we started growing our augmented reality business, we saw a very big opportunity because people were using our camera all day long. You know, they're creating over 4 billion snaps every single day. And so we realized that we could give them, you know, new effects and new ways to use their camera with augmented reality that would help them create better snaps and more fun snaps. And we, we built uh, originally just a couple of lenses. Those are our augmented reality products. And you know, maybe seven or something. And people started using them and they loved them. And over time, what we did is we made those tools that, you know, to create those augmented reality effects available to our entire community. And so now today, you know, there have been over a million lenses created by our community for our community to use. And because people have created more and more lenses, more and more people want to use our camera and want to use our products. And so you have this very virtuous feedback loop where the usage of Snapchat makes it a more compelling place for developers to invest in uh, our, our products, uh, which then brings more people uh, onto Snapchat to, to use our service. And so I think that sort of virtuous cycle is one of the really exciting things you know, that technology platforms have to offer. Um, and when you have that, I think that can over time become a very powerful moat. You know, Evan, as a CEO of let's just call it a lightning speed world. I mean, you do you have a personal strategic process that you use to to to, you know, Gretzky always said you got to go where the puck's going. I mean, do, what's your do you have a, a personal way of going about strategy? Because obviously you're very strategic. Well, I think our strategy is, like I mentioned, always been 
driven by our community. And so what I try to do is remain, you know, tuned into our community and to people and what they're passionate about and interested in and the types of products they're using and the problems that they have. And I think for us, that's really informed our strategy uh, over time because it helps us build great products. And Snap is really a product-driven company. I mean, we, we really think about ourselves that way. So rather than, you know, creating some giant, you know, macro landscape and figuring out, you know, where the biggest market is and going after that, what we try to do is just solve real human problems with our products. We work on growing our business that way. So for us, um, you know, it's, it's really just about empathy, making sure we're hiring people um, who are empathetic to the needs of our uh, customers and staying, you know, really close to them. Do you have a, a, a special way you really get it at, at problems? Because I, I love how entrepreneurs like yourself, they always find out what those biggest problems are that are occurring for their customers that occur most frequently. Then they they solve them, you know, and that leads to innovation. Do you have a particular way of going out of really understanding what those problems are? Well, my approach to, you know, understanding problems is really just asking a lot of questions. And I'm not afraid to ask dumb questions. I mean, the vast majority of all the questions I ask are, are really dumb. Um, and I, I think that's what really helps me understand what the problem actually is. And I think that in, in and of itself is the key. And that's how you get to the insight. Because I think unless you really ask a lot of questions and go very uh, deep into these issues, it can be hard to you know, get clarity around specifically what the, what the problem itself is. And once there's that clarity and real understanding of where the problem is, then I think it's, it's much easier to solve. So for me, a lot of my time and energy is spent on defining the problem itself by asking a lot of questions. And so once you find that problem, you figure out where you're going, how do you instill a real sense of urgency in your company? Well, the problem itself is usually enough to inspire and, and drive our team because they love a good problem. Um, and, and I think the, the fun thing then is in the problem solving process, that ideation that happens is really what we get a lot of joy out of. So, you know, we, we just try to come up with as many ideas as we can to solve uh, a problem. And we know that the vast majority of those ideas, you know, 99% of those ideas, we're just going to throw out. And so it's a very liberating process when you have this feeling that, you know, the vast majority of the ideas we have, we're going to throw out anyway. So we might as well come up with as many as we can. And so that reduces the pressure to coming up with new ideas. And that part of the process is always a, a ton of fun. Well, you've got to have some great designers because you've got products that now, like Facebook's ripping off every time you come out with something, they rip it off. You know, how does that make you feel? I mean, how pissed off do you get? <laughs> well, you know, I think the hallmark of, of a really great designer is that your ideas get copied. And so what we're very focused on is coming up with new ideas. And that's, that's really where the emphasis is uh, for our team. And I think in our industry in general, there can oftentimes be this, you know, almost uh, in, instinctive reaction to try to protect your ideas. But what we've learned over time is that by being open with your ideas and getting feedback on them, you make your ideas better. And so I think you have to resist the urge to really, uh, you know, try to protect your ideas at all costs and instead be open with them and generous with them because you know, the amount of new ideas we have is, you know, probably infinite. Uh, there's always new, new ideas. And so, um, you know, ideas are not the scarce, uh, the scarce resource at Snap. The scarce resource is, you know, our ability to execute and engineering and things like that. And so I think you have, just have to resist the urge to treat ideas as something precious and instead, like, really focus on driving uh, high-quality execution and, you know, keep innovating. You know, speaking of Facebook and social media in, in general, I... I understand you spend a ton of time studying the regulatory history of media in general. And where do you think it's all headed? I know you could probably spend hours on this, but if you could boil it down, where do you think it's headed? Well, it's funny you mentioned that. You know, when I'm looking towards the future, I actually get a lot of inspiration from the past uh, because there are so many people who have spent, you know, millions and millions of hours working on these problems and thinking about them. So rather than kind of trying to come up with something from scratch, we can just learn from what other people have spent their lives working on. And that's certainly the case as it, you know, pertains to regulation. And so, you know, with the United States in particular, and to some extent Europe, I think the, the way that we've thought about media regulation in general uh, in the United States is that we've really bifurcated communication from broadcast media. And we've said that there are really two different sets of rules that apply to those two different things, you know, uh, communication and broadcast, two different regulatory bodies. And generally, that's worked pretty well. And so the expectations around telecommunications, for example, is that you can have a private conversation with your friends, you can say totally crazy and inappropriate things, and the government actually has to do quite a bit of work to get a warrant and stuff like that if they want to listen to your conversation. And 
I, I think so far that's you know struck the right balance between protecting the security and you know safety of our citizens, also allowing people to express their ideas in private. Um, you know, and then on the flip side, I, I think when you look at broadcasting, historically in our country, we've viewed broadcasting as a pretty big responsibility. You know, you're reaching hundreds of thousands, millions of people uh, with information, and therefore broadcasters are held to a much higher standard than people who are just talking with their friends. And that, that makes sort of common sense to me. I, I, I understand why we thought about it that way. But the challenge it poses for the internet looking forward um, is that never before in our history have we allowed any individual you know, person in this country to broadcast whatever they want to millions and millions and millions of people. And that's, that, in, in, in my opinion, is a tremendous privilege to be able to, to communicate with millions of people. And I think it is reasonable that we have guidelines around what is and is not acceptable when we're broadcasting things. There's a lot of sensitivity around that because that is the business model of social media. That's how social media has worked. And, and I think um, you know, that is a little bit uh, you know, of, of where you see some of the challenges that we have today. And I think the last point that I want to make, um, it maybe pertains to how we think about the First Amendment, because I hear all the time, you know, oh, well, free speech should be allowed on, on these different platforms. And that's just not you know, how the First Amendment was conceived or how we've thought about you know, free speech historically in our country. What we've said, actually, you know, is, is that the First Amendment is designed to protect individual citizens and businesses from the government that individual citizens and businesses actually have a right to free speech. And so what I think is fascinating is the, the First Amendment right actually protects platforms like Snap or like Facebook or Twitter to make whatever decisions they'd like to make about the sorts of content that are on their platforms. And so I, I think the question today is how are these different platforms going to exercise their First Amendment rights? And how are we going to find a way to, I think, express the notion that if you are broadcasting to millions and millions of people, that maybe there should be a higher standard of what you're able to communicate, certainly a standard that's higher than just chatting with one of your buddies. As I was preparing for this interview and thinking about what you've really gone through here, you're like a three-year-old company, you know, it's like, and yet you've got all this attention on you, you know, what's it like just being so much in the public eye? Well, now, now it's normal. Um, but, you know, I think, I think the transition was really difficult. Um, you know, I, I remember being a kid, I think when we started the company, I was like 20, 21 years old. And, you know, the, my sense of, you know, feeling held accountable was like either through the school or something like the principal's office or my parents, those were the people who were really holding me accountable. And then, you know, running a business as a private company, the, the media really holds you accountable, your investors hold you accountable, your board, um, the general public. And as you become a, a public company and really meaningful in people's lives in terms of the way they communicate and hang out with their friends, um, you know, the accountability just grows and grows. So I think, you know, that that, that transition uh, was challenging because I had never, you know, experienced that before. But I, I, I think, you know, we have a lot of systems in our country that are really designed to create accountability. And I think those systems are, are powerful. And I think ultimately, even though it's not particularly fun, and sometimes it's a little painful, I think we all, you know, get a better outcome, you know, both in terms of our society benefiting from leaders who are held accountable, and also like my own personal growth, I feel like I was pushed uh, in some respects to really grow as a leader. And, and, you know, I'm grateful for that experience. You know, that, that brings me to this next question. Perfect segue, you know, is how do you balance what I'm going to just call snap 1.0? Okay. Like one to three years, you know, the, the short term versus snap 2.0, where you see the business going 10 years ago, you know, you have this huge broad vision, huge frame of reference where you can develop all kinds of products. How, how do you balance that? How do you balance the two? Well, for me, the key is a really talented team of operators. And, uh, you know, for me, uh, the, the nitty gritty of operating the business has never been, you know, my real passion. I, I can do it. And, you know, uh, I, I really like the results that we get when we, when we uh, you know, really focus on our operations. But for me, you know, that's not what gets me up in the morning. The thing that I'm really passionate about is working on the product and our, we, with our creative teams and, and things like that. And so the key for me has been really building a world-class team of leaders who love doing that. <laughs> and, you know, we, we often joke, like they, they love it. They just are obsessed with operating the business. That's what they want to wake up and do every day. And, and I think that uh, balance that we have where, you know, my passions are different than their passions and their skills and abilities are different than mine has created a really great uh, team dynamic and partnership. And that's what allows me to spend more of my time thinking about the future of the business or 
you know, making investments in longer term product plans that could take three, five, 10 years to really come to fruition. And I can do all of that with the comfort uh, that we've got this really remarkable team executing uh, on, on the business. So that, that to me has been, has been the big, uh, the big secret, but uh, it's, it's never easy to find the perfect balance. I just think it's important to constantly be thinking about the future. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Evan Spiegel in just a moment. I had the opportunity to sit down with Patrick Spence, the CEO of Sonos, and learn that he and his team are constantly innovating. I worry about the future of innovation. I worry about the ability for startups to, you know, really thrive in a world where, you know, there's a few companies that really dominate and acquire companies, you know, along the way to try and reduce competition and some of those things. And that's why I've been trying to stand for innovation and competition. And I just think, David, we would be a much more vibrant country if we had a lot more small and medium-sized businesses. Sonus has created a culture of innovation and it's been a key to their success. And here's the thing. You can learn to create this kind of culture too. Listen to episode 81 with Patrick Spence here on How Leaders Lead. You know, you've been really honest. I've read a lot of stuff about you. and You've been honest about your early days as a leader. You kind of got described yourself as a frat boy leader or whatever. Did you have some sort of watershed moment where you said, hey, I, I've really got to up my leadership game and this is something I've got to be as good at as I am at product development? Well, I, I wouldn't say it was one watershed moment. I think it's been continuous. And I think the bar is always being raised, uh, you know, as it should. I mean, I, I enjoy... Uh, that feeling of growing personally, I enjoy that. Uh, enjoy that challenge, and I think there's always more to do to become a better person and a better leader and better contribute to our company. I mean, some of the best moments for me have been ones where you know my mentors or friends have had really direct and honest conversations with me about needing to step up. You know, one example um, it was one of our board members, Stan. Uh, who really believed that I needed to spend more time, you know, communicating with our company, you know, doing all hands meetings and things like that. And I really didn't like doing it. I, I've never really enjoyed public speaking all that much and certainly not in front of a big audience. And so that made me feel really uncomfortable. And Stan just looks at me and is like, Evan, too bad. It's your job. Like, figure it out, you know? And, and it was just so helpful for me to have, you know, someone who I really admire who's a leader basically be like, too bad, figure it out. And so literally from that moment, I'm like, I'm going to figure out how I can love doing that, like how I can enjoy it and feel comfortable doing it. And now I spend, you know, an, uh, once a week, an hour a week with our co company and just answering their questions and communicating with them. And so, um, you know, that, that's, that was an example. But I think there, you know, there's countless moments like that. Um, and I've just been fortunate to have really great mentors and leaders along the way tell me, you know, when I need to step up. You know, the, the best investors I know, Evan, you know, the, the Warren Buffetts of the world, the Ken Langones, the, the Alan Breeds, they, they, they all invest in, in a company only if they believe in the CEO's leadership. You know, why should someone invest in you? I, I mean, I, I think the most important uh, thing I've learned as a leader is really just that like continuous curiosity um, and this feeling that I like I've barely scratched the surface in terms of what I know. Um, and what I'm going to be able to learn. And so I think keeping that sort of just growth mindset to me has been the most valuable asset as a leader. Um, and it's been the most fun part of the job because if every single day you're learning something new and growing and, you know, arguably even becoming a new person. I mean, I feel like every couple of months, I'm like a new person in terms of the, the skills that I've acquired and the ways that I've had to, to grow. And so I, I think for me, um, you know, the investment thesis uh, is always about people's ability to grow. Uh, and that's why I think um, investing in Snap <laughs> would would uh, be a good investment. Every great leader that I've ever met, you know, and, and I, if I had to pick one trait that separates them all is that they are curious and that they 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 are avid learners. Is there anything in particular you do to to stay on top of your, the world or get the know how that you need to take the company to the next level? Well, I read voraciously uh, all the time. Um, but I, but I think the other thing that's helped beyond reading has really, and now this is like probably the biggest blessing of my job is that all sorts of really interesting people, including yourself are, are willing to talk with me and share their leadership lessons and, and their experiences. I remember when we first spoke, you know, you spent some time sharing with me how you think about leadership and development and rewarding your top performers on your team. And so I've just been able to learn from so many great, uh, leaders out there. And so I think, 
for me, you know, that privilege, that access to other really talented leaders has been the thing that's, that's made such a big difference. We were talking just a second ago about Snap 1.0, Snap 2.0. It, you know, I always felt when, when I was CEO that you, you had to really put wins on the board short term to have credibility for the long term. How do you respond to that? Ooh, well, it might be a little bit different for me, um, you know, having created the company with Bobby, because, you know, we just view the fact that we're in business as like a massive win. Uh, you know, if you, when you started my dad's dining room table, and all your friends have these great fancy jobs and they're making a ton of money and you're sitting at your dad's dining room table and you're like, you know, uh, just working on, on an app, hoping that um, it'll get some traction, I think. You know, for us, the, the win was always just that we got to create our own business and we, you know, we uh, were able to, to sort of follow our dream. And so I, I think for us, that that's really been been the most exciting um, part of it. But I, yeah, certainly, you know, in terms of creating momentum with the team and things like that, I think it is really important. And I think, you know, it, it, for, for me also, when I'm looking at, you know, setting goals for our team, I also really want to help our team understand how those short-term goals ladder up into the more important long-term goals. Yeah. And so it's not just about like, you know, tackling some short-term win today. It's about how that short-term win today is going to help us achieve our vision five, 10 years from now. And I think that's really how you can get momentum because not only do you get people aligned around the near-term objectives, but they also can see that shared future together. You've brought up Bobby Murphy a couple of times. You guys founded the company together. How did you guys go about defining what each one of you is going to do? We just got so lucky because we just both ended up doing what we love to do and it turned out to be different. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I think that, you know, that ended up uh, being a real blessing. I know there are some founders that, you know, uh, have a little trouble figuring out, you know, where people's strengths are and sort of how that lines up with the job descriptions. But we've just both, uh, we both love doing different things. And we also both loved working together and respected each other and appreciated the different skills that we brought to the table. And so, that's that, uh, in my opinion, is really what has made the relationship work. You have control, as I understand it, of almost, you know, all the, the, the voting control for your stock. You know, why do you think that's good for your business and, and, and shareholders? Well, I think what it allows us to do are, are make really big, bold, long-term decisions and be able to weather the ups and downs. So like you mentioned with the redesign, you know, I think our stock was down, I think you mentioned something like 80% from where it went public. And ultimately, we, that was a result of making a lot of decisions that we thought were good for the long term of the business. And, you know, certainly, uh, I think we've seen some uh, recent indications that the stock market has started to come around to that uh, perspective as well. I think having um, voting control allows you to make those big bold decisions. And in technology, that is particularly important because if you do not continually reinvent yourself, you will be put out of business. And so that focus on continual reinvention, that ability to take big bets, I, I believe is enabled by uh, you know, our long-term voting structure. Uh, but we're, we're a bit unique in that you know, our voting structure, for example, sunsets when Bobby and I pass away, that's really different than other companies who you know, think it's okay to pass that on to your children or something like that. So we tried to strike the right boundaries and put some guardrails around how we thought about voting control um, because, you know, it, it is very important, I think, that Bobby and I get to fulfill our vision. But hopefully by the time, you know, we get a little bit older, uh, we'll be able to develop a whole new group of leaders at Snap uh, and, and really, uh, you know, empower them to follow their vision for the future of the company. And that shouldn't necessarily be inhibited by our children having the voting control or something like that. Well, I think the voting control, my personal opinion is, is that it does, you know, I think the great shareholders that are going to be with you a long time, they appreciate the fact that you can make those long-term decisions, which is, which is fantastic. But, and when it comes to driving shareholder value, consistent, reliable performance is, is key. You know, you had that one little hiccup there at the beginning. How much does volatility scare you today? Well, I, I think especially early on in the life of the company like ours, volatility is to be expected. Um, I, I think when, when you're talking about consistency and things like that, oftentimes that's something that's really prized in companies that are, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 years old, um, you know, with, with a different shareholder base. Snap, Snap is really a growth story. You know, I think what our revenue in the first quarter grew something like 44% year over year. Uh, which I think was maybe the highest out of all the other, you know, uh, tech stocks in our sector, at least. Um, and so I think what people are really investing in is that growth and the ability to to grow our business over the long term, with an understanding that 
that does come, you know, with some additional volatility because it's a young business. Um, and, you know, we, we're still going to continue to take these, these big bets. You mentioned earlier, you're really spending a lot of time communicating with your, your, the broader organization. You're getting at yourself out of the, the, you know, that, you know, into more comfortable position doing that, which is, which is terrific. And, and, you know, you have a team that you feel really passionate about. What's a coaching session like with Evan Spiegel? Oh, wow. Um, well, I think the most important thing is that it's unique uh, to each individual. You know, we do coaching together as a team. Um, but, you know, I find the one-on-one -on -one conversations to be uh, really helpful because I think there's a, a certain amount of just openness um, that, that team members, you know, feel when they're working through problems. And so what I really like to do is just, you know, try to solve problems together with our team members. So talking about issues uh, that they're seeing on their team, talking about um, challenges that they're having with, you know, the structure or the way work's getting done, or even help people, you know, problem solve on our team. One, one of the things I learned early on, I wish I had learned it, you know, even earlier, uh, was really my job as a leader in terms of conflict resolution. You know, I, I really believed, you know, it, when I was just getting started, that if two really experienced leaders came to me with a conflict, you know, my job was actually to say, well, you know, you two should, should figure that out. You know, that, uh, you know, you're both really talented professionals. I'm sure you two can work it out. But what I, I wasn't realizing was that if they were bringing it to me, they'd already tried maybe a couple times. And so actually my role uh, was to help them solve it and help make that decision. And so I also try to take very seriously, you know, my role in terms of helping assist our team members work better together and put them in, in situations where they can really succeed and, and support one another. So, uh, you know, a bunch of my time is spent one-on-one -on -one helping people develop, but also thinking about the interpersonal relationships on our team. Because, you know, as I mentioned, we, we really like to have a team-based culture and a team-based feeling, which is different than, you know, maybe a more hierarchical structure. And that means everyone has to really respect and admire and work together with one another. And you have to invest in those relationships. That doesn't just happen automatically. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I remember when I was coming up and I had fairly large responsibilities, you know, I was young and I had a lot of older people working for me. That created a lot of anxiety for me. How about you? Oh, I mean, it was pretty fun. I'm, uh, I, I, uh, I was always like the youngest at these like CEO dinner parties and stuff like that. I thought it was pretty funny. It's definitely fun being a, being a young leader. And I, what I found is that, you know, so many of these, you know, more experienced leaders are so generous and willing to share their learnings. And that uh, has been amazing for me just to have those resources on our team um, and have, you know, amazing leaders who are working at Snap who are also willing to share their expertise with me is, is awesome. So you get all kinds of advice and you seek all kinds of advice. What's the best advice you've received from another leader? The one piece of advice, I mean, maybe the biggest difference in the life of our company was a piece of advice I got from one of our investors when we were still in my dad's house. And he said, Evan, you need to get really good at saying no. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you know, now that the company is growing, a lot of people are going to come to you with different requests and they're going to want to collaborate together. And, you know, they, you know, they might want to partner together or these sorts of things. And you know, you don't have that many resources. You've got like four people working in your dad's house. And so you need to get really good at saying no, um, because that'll help you focus on the things that are important. And that message and that permission, you know, this was someone who I really admired. And the fact that he gave me permission to say no, when I think all of us, because we're human, we want to help other people. We want to be really uh, empathetic. And we always, we want a partner. I think, you know, having that permission to say, no, I'm sorry, I really need to focus on the core things that are fundamental to our business that permission early on made a massive difference for us, uh, you know, because we really could focus and use our resources on the things that we thought, you know, would create the most value. What would be the worst advice you ever received? Uh, sell the company. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I was thinking that was going to be the answer. You know, tell us the difference you think between the Evan Spiegel, the person that uh, versus the Evan Spiegel that's written about in the press. What's the biggest difference or, or is it identical? Oh, wow. You know, uh, I think as, especially when I was younger, I was really guarded with the, with the media and I wasn't really open. I didn't do a lot of interviews. And so that actually means the media like, didn't get to know me very well at all. Um, I didn't really like doing sort of stories and things like that. And if I did, I would talk, you know, just about the business and the product and not about myself or my values or, or anything. And so I think that created like some unnecessary friction in my relationship with the media. But for me, you know, I was super young. I was 20 something years old and just trying to figure it all out. And so I didn't feel comfortable being open about who I was with the media. And so I, I think, um, 
I, I think in that way, I didn't build the, the relationships with the media that I could have just because I wasn't as willing to be open and to you know, really participate in that process. And so that made it harder for the stories that were written to reflect who I am because most of the time the writers didn't know me. But now, you know, I'm more open to, to interviews and to sharing who I am with, with reporters and things like that. And I feel more comfortable doing that now after, you know, however many years. So hopefully the stories now at least are, you know, at least reflect some of my, some of my input. I don't know. Well, I certainly appreciate you being so open with Bid, And this has been so much fun. I want to have some more and I want to do a lightning round of Q&A with you real quick. Okay. You know, so what three words best describe you? Well, hopefully our company values, kind, smart, creative. All right. What's your biggest pet peeve? Uh, lateness. If you could be one person for a day, who would it be and why? Um, let's try Lafayette. <laughs> How come? Uh, because I, I think he, at least in my opinion, represented um, a connection between two very important and early democracies. Um, and was really able to, you know, thread, thread the needle between both, carry the learnings across both at, a, at times that were mission critical for the success, uh, you know, of, of France and the United States. But what's something about you that few people would know? Well, I, pl- I played the trumpet in second grade. I don't know if anyone knows that. That was a total disaster. <laughs> Do you have any hidden talents that we should know about? Uh, I'm a helicopter pilot. Is that right? You know, and... and- you get interviewed all the time now. What's the best interview question you've ever had? I mean, some, some of my favorites are definitely around mistakes, <laughs> um, you know, because I think we learn the most from those. And what would you describe as your biggest mistake in your life so far? I, I think the biggest mistakes I've made have always been when I, like, I haven't gotten ahead of the growth of the company. And that's usually where I have to spend the most time cleaning up. And so, you know, I, I've all, it always comes back if I'm not thinking, you know, a couple years ahead of where the company is going and, and thinking about the steps we need to take to get there, the infrastructure we have to have, the right people and leaders uh, for the company, that's, that's usually when it gets really challenging. And so I'm now constantly uh, thinking about that and paranoid about, you know, what, it, what, it, what do we need to change now so that we're ready for the future? Evan, I want to wrap this up by touching on two major events that we've we've gone through. You know, how much do you think that COVID nineteen is going to change the world as we know it? Well, the most important thing that COVID has done, in my opinion, even though it's been very painful to watch, is it has laid bare the tremendous inequity in American society and the failures of many of our systems, including our health system, to take care of our citizens and. That's been most obvious because the outcomes in other countries are very different. Um, And other countries have been able to manage this crisis uh, more effectively. And so I think when you see that, you know, for example, uh, you know, black or Latinx people in our culture are dying at higher rates, when you see that the economic impact of COVID disproportionately impacts those people who, who are also dying at higher rates. When you see the backdrop of racism that persists in our country today, exacerbated by this uh, situation, I think generally uh, it's a really important step for our country to take to at least see that this problem exists. Because unless we're willing to acknowledge this problem, unless we're willing to acknowledge this history, uh, unless we're willing to acknowledge the inequities in our system today, it's going to be very difficult for us to fix them. And so I think even in the short term, while this is an excruciating period of time. I do think this event brings us closer to a country that embodies our values uh, over the longer term. And I I wasn't sure, you know, what series of events would get us there. (laughs) Uh, It certainly, in my view, was something that would take a much longer period of time. I think that period of time may be shorter as a result uh, of COVID. So I think the biggest thing that it's done is really laid bare the inequities in our society and the failings of, of our country to take care of its citizens. Evan, you you posted, I want to compliment you on this. It was amazingly insightful and what I think some people would call soulful note on, on the call for racial justice. I mean, it was really well done. What do you think was the most salient points you made? And I encourage all our listeners to go online and, and, and read Evan's note. I actually think that the, the most important point and maybe the macro point, uh, and it's something we all need to talk about, Um, is the way that we're investing in the future of our society and our country. 
and the realization that, uh, you know, we've had this massive demographic shift in the United States. So the United States is now much less white than it was uh, many years ago, and it's about 50-50 today. And concurrent with that change over the past, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, we've actually divested from the future. So we've reduced our spending on research and development. We've actually made it more difficult uh, to get an affordable education that really prepares you for the workforce. We've made it harder uh, to access things like housing, things that create a little bit of a safety net to allow you to take risks and follow your passions and dreams. And so I, I think in this country, we're having a bit of a, a realization that we do need to invest in the future, uh, that we do need to invest in our young people. And our young people look different uh, than the you know, politicians or the current uh, you know, group of people that run the country. And I think that's where a lot of this tension uh, is coming from today. And so I think we can all talk about and get excited about these investments in the future because the other thing that we know is that these future-oriented investments are profitable investments for our country because they generate more revenue over the long term and actually more than pay for themselves. So when we're spending money on education for people 0 to 18, when we're spending money on healthcare for people 0 to 18, those investments are hugely profitable and result in more revenue for the government. And so what I want to do is have a conversation here that this is not only about doing the right thing, you know, about ensuring the future success of our country, but it's also the like the prudent thing to do, the profitable thing to do. Um, and so in that way, I think this is something that we should be able to get alignment on uh, as a country. It'll help us live our values, but it'll also make us a much more successful country overall. You started out in that letter saying you apologize for taking so long to, to publish it. And once I read the letter, I knew why it took you a while. I mean, it was extremely thoughtful. Well done. Evan, Wrapping this up, but what would be three bits of advice you'd give to aspiring leaders and, or entrepreneurs? Oh, well, I, I think the biggest thing for me, the thing that changed my life, um, was that my parents just encouraged me to try all the things that I was curious about from a really young age and never made me feel bad uh, when you know, it wasn't something that resonated or I wanted to try something else. They didn't make me feel like a failure when I gave up. And, you know, it, it can be hard as a parent. I see right now with our nine-year-old, you know, like sometimes he wants to play the piano and other times he's like, I never want to play the piano again and I want to do swimming or whatever it is. And I think, you know, it's hard because as a parent, you want to teach your children to have that work ethic and that drive um, to really complete things and, you know, become a great pianist or whatever it is. But when you're young and discovering yourself and discovering your passions, it's actually really important that you don't waste time trying to become a world-class pianist if you actually should be an Olympic swimmer or an artist or whatever it is. And so for me, I think it's just reducing the amount of time that it takes for you to find the things that you're passionate about, reducing the amount of time it takes to find uh, the things that really get you up in the morning. And if you can do that, then everything else is easy. And it took me a while. I tried a bunch of different things. You know, I interned at a company that did biomedical computation. I worked in marketing, I, you know, on and on and on. And it took me a long time to really find like computer science and graphic design and mechanical engineering and, and all of these things that I really enjoyed. And, you know, after I did that, everything else was easy because I love what I do. And, you know, I, I get excited to do it every day. Last but not least, you know, how much fun are you having being a father? You just mentioned your nine-year-old son and, and having such a great family. And, and how are you keeping it all in balance? Well, I just feel unbelievably blessed, first of all, to have such a wonderful and caring wife, uh, you know, who's also a fantastic mother. And she, she's the center of our universe over here. So our household revolves around her. And, you know, we've got three boys. So it's the four boys. And we're just, you know, in awe, <laughs> in awe of her. She's the, she's the queen of our uh, universe. She, she definitely keeps everything uh, together. But I, I think the thing that's been transformational about COVID in this period of time for me is that I've had to, you know, choose uh, less between my work and, and our family. And, you know, in the past, I really felt like I had to sacrifice a lot. You know, I would leave before our kids would get up in the morning. I'd get home after they were asleep. You know, I'd be traveling a lot, even on the weekends. And it was very hard for me uh, to connect with our family. And I felt like I was sacrificing a lot of that time for our business. Um, and ultimately, that's really important. I'm responsible for thousands of people at SNAP and for our broader community and our partners. So. That, that weighs on me too, um, but I felt like I had to choose all the time. And with COVID now, um, I see our kids so, you know, all, all day, every day, more or less. Uh, and that's, that's been you know, one of the real joys of this very difficult period of time. Well, Evan, it's been a real joy for me to have this conversation. And I appreciate so much you taking the time to do it. There's a lot of insight that you provided and uh, thank you very much. 
Uh, thanks, David. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Man, Snap is so good at innovating and finding that next big thing. And I think it's in part because Evan himself loves to learn. It's really striking. He's always exploring and staying curious. And he's got this constant supply of fresh ideas because he's setting that example in his company. And now it's time for my favorite part of our podcast episodes. This is where I give you some coaching to help you develop as a leader. This week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, I'll start with the question, what exactly are you curious about? I already know you like to learn because you're listening to this podcast, but let's take it a step further this week. Commit to this for one week. I want you to spend 10 minutes a day reading up on something you're really, really curious about. It doesn't even have to be a business book. Just give yourself permission to be curious and dig into it. As Evan shows, it's so necessary if you want to build a culture where innovation thrives. You got to open your mind to new things and suspend judgment and let things happen. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders know how to foster innovation. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you can become the best leader you can be.